0: good morning church good to see you and uh i'm gonna wrap up this series i'm kind of sad about that um we're in uh, message seven of seven in the here i stand uh, series and we're gonna uh kind of get our focus on the church uh, today so um ready for that all right let's start with this people love to hate the church okay True, right? So you hear that uncomfortable ripple that goes through the room right there because you know somebody who's like that. They uh, love to hate the church, but maybe you'd be surprised to hear me say that, um, that uh, there's good reason for it. We start to run down the list of things that happen inside churches. Um, there's a reason why people hate the church. Uh, sexual abuse scandals, infighting, church and denominational splits. The church can be an incubator for gossip for sure financial improprieties and racism, there's rampant hypocrisy, Christians uh, pretending to be something they're not. And uh, when you uh, look at that list that I've uh, just gone through, I could uh, tell you right now, um, I could cite an example of all of these things from my own ministry experience. So I deny none of it. The church is literally the worst. And while preaching sin and repentance, members uh, themselves struggle with sin. They find it hard to really repent. Christians are hard on each other and they're hard on non-Christians. They spout on about holiness and yet they live reckless and inconsistent lives. They lie, they steal, they cheat on their spouses. They look at porn. They watch violent, profanity-filled and sexually charged television and movies and recommend them to their friends. They eat too much. They drink too much. They talk about people for entertainment purposes. And on the weekends, they gather their family and they grab their Bibles and they head out to be the church. I'm pretty sure I have your attention. That is how most people see us. That is a perception of the church that's out there. But do you wonder, and maybe this is the better question, how does God actually see the church? How does does God see us In Ephesians chapter 5, and I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 5 with me. In this section, in Ephesians 5 and 6, Paul is taking some time to talk about various relationships that we have. And the largest section of this, he spends some time talking about marriage, the relationship between husbands and wives. The whole context of it is about mutual submission and how we're to be mutually submissive to one another. And so we have this instructions on husbands and wives and his example to husbands about how they're supposed to love their wives actually pertains to the church and this matter of how God sees us. So he says, this is in Ephesians 5, uh, 25 and 27. He says, husbands, love your wives. There's the relational part of this thing. Now he goes into his example. As Christ loved the church and, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her or make her pure, uh, set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, you can see where he's talking about marriage, but then you really get the sense he trips over into uh, some really powerful teaching about the church itself. And we have this beautiful picture of Christ loving the church, and you can't miss the fact that it's actually a future view of what the church is going to be. It's not yet accomplished. In fact, it takes us, Revelation chapter 1, right at the end of the Bible, we have this wedding that's taking place. The bride is the church. The bridegroom is Christ, and we're still waiting for that to happen. And Christ is currently purifying his church, getting us to the place where we're able to stand at that altar with him and be married for eternity to our God, to Christ, the bridegroom, And so three very quick observations here about this passage. First of all, the sanctification of the church, the purifying of the church, not done. It's not done. Secondly, related to it, there are plenty of spots, wrinkles, and blemishes still. Lots of spots, blemishes, wrinkles still in this room among people who claim Christ. And three, despite her lack of sanctification, Jesus loves the church. Now, this, is a rather, this isn't just like an introduction that gets us into the message. This is a rather hard-hitting, I'm coming right at you uh, with this truth. Christ loves the church, and here's the reason why I'm, we're starting this way. So should I. So should I. I should love the church. I must love the church. And so as we conclude this Here I Stand series with a message on the church, we want to understand the church better from God's perspective, see it the way he sees it, and therefore love it the way he loves it. Despite its many frailties and all of its failings, let's establish what we believe and love the church. So these are the statements we've been making all the way along in this series. Here's our statement for this message. What I believe is this, the church is the community of God's people, the community of God's people, redeemed by Jesus Christ and on mission in the world. Here I stand on that statement. Let's pray together and then we'll start working through the word of God today, let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for loving us in the way uh, that is described here for the sacrificial love, for sending your son Jesus to give himself for us, to sanctify us, make us pure, heading toward that wedding day. Thank you, God, for using us in our weakness in these days, using us despite us. and Show us uh, right now what we need to know about the church. Help us to love the church as you do. As we get your word open now, teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get after this. What I believe, the church is the community of God's people, redeemed by Jesus Christ and on mission in the world. Uh, let's start with the definition of that word church so we understand what it is. It comes from the Greek. It's in the New Testament. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so the Greek word here is ekklesia, which means this, an assembly or congregation with a well-defined membership. In ancient Greek, when this word uh, was used, it always um, referred to a clearly identifiable group of people. It's not simply a loose or random gathering of people. This is a, this is a, a group that, that you could look at and say they belong to each other. And, um, and so that's an ecclesia. That's when we're talking about the church, that's what we're talking about. And you can see that we use that word in fact in english we talk about this being a message on ecclesiology or the study of the church and so with that definition kind of in our mind this assembly or congregation well-defined membership of people it's a community of god's people redeemed by jesus christ on mission in the world why do i believe that well the word of god gives us several statements that help us get to that place so let's look at these now why i believe this the church is six statements now first found it on a confession It's founded on a confession. In other words, everything that we do as a church and all that we are as a church is based on what we believe. It's based on a doctrinal foundation. And I uh, was thinking about this word confession, the fact that it's founded on confession. I started thinking about one pastor and theologian in particular. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe some of you uh, know a little bit about him. Bonhoeffer uh, never made his 40th birthday. He was a a German uh, pastor and theologian, and he lived in the first part of the 20th century, and he came face to face with uh, Nazism in uh, Germany in the 30s and 40s. And what happened was the uh, Germans had a national church. The church was kind of institutionalized and and, uh, folded in with the government. Um, But there were very faithful pastors like Bonhoeffer who were preaching the word of God and people were worshiping Christ and were true believers. And then somewhere along the line, uh, Hitler and his gang infiltrated the national church. And... um, The national church then began to embrace uh, the doctrines of national socialism and particularly the idea of uh, uh, superiority of races and Arianism. Well, Bonhoeffer and others who were very committed to the word of God began to examine the scriptures and seeing the things that the Nazis were bringing in and they began to distance themselves and eventually separated themselves from the official national church. And they established and this is why i'm telling you this story they established the confessing church in germany unofficial unrecognized but it was made up of people who who were looking at the word of god and saying that's not our church anymore now for that you can imagine what happened here for that many of these pastors who were part of the confessing church were imprisoned, many went to concentration camps, and many lost their lives, including Bonhoeffer, who just weeks before the end of World War II was executed in a concentration camp. And you hear something like that and you realize there are some things, I hope you believe this, there are some things worth dying for. And maybe you would think about this series if you've been a part of this entire series and you would go, you know what? There are some doctrines here that I would be willing to die for. I would die for the doctrine of Scripture. I would die for the doctrine of Christ. I would die for the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I would die for the doctrine of salvation. But should I die for the doctrine of the church? Is it that important? And the answer is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And others like him in Germany in the 30s and 40s who gave their lives because the church had abandoned the scriptures and had embraced some things that were wicked and destructive. Some things are worth dying for and everything we do and all that we are flows from what we believe, what we confess. And in a very real way, this right here is a confessing church. There are things we would die for. And the warning is there as well. When we compromise the core elements of our faith, it really is only a matter of time before the church itself completely unravels. And so we fast forward now into our day, in our country, in our time. What we have today is a crisis in the midst of the church. There's a very good reason why many denominations, mainline denominations, long-established, traditional-type churches, and even some evangelical denominations that we would more identify with ourselves, there's a very good reason why some of these churches are in sharp decline, why people are not going to church, why denominations and churches are selling off their buildings, why mergers are taking place, why fewer and fewer people are going to church. Listen, in Canada, the church is in crisis. Now, why is that? Many of these denominational leaders and church leaders think that the fix is, is in programming, that if you could just tweak a few things and change a few things, that they could turn around the decline. Maybe if we change the music, maybe if we change the name of our church, Maybe if we update the decor and we add some new ministries, maybe if we build a great website and change our logo, that'll bring people in. None of that's going to be effective. If what has truly happened is an eroding of the core doctrines of what we believe, if the confession of what we believe has been abandoned. The continued decline... Should be, but often isn't. It should be unsurprising. We're founded on a confession. Matthew chapter 16, what is the confession? At its very core, Matthew 16, 13 to 20, Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. He gathers them in, and this is after he'd already been doing a bunch of miracles and already been teaching um, uh, a considerable amount of, of, of what the gospel is and what the kingdom of God is about, about himself as the Savior. So so he said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? He's taking a survey. Various opinions are expressed. Various options are talked about and given to Jesus. And then he turns to Peter after hearing all of this. He turns to Peter and he says to Peter, but who do you say that I am? Remember what Peter said? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Peter, what you've said, it's right on, but you didn't get this. You didn't figure this out. Heaven gave you this. And then he says this to Peter. And on this rock, on this rock. Okay. Now the Catholics mess this up because the Catholics think we are talking about Peter. And so, so they made Peter the first Pope. Okay, in their minds, he's the first pope because Jesus said on Peter, on this rock, I'm gonna build my church, that's not it. It's the confession, it's the confession. On this rock, on this foundation, on this ground, on the thing that you just said, not because you figured it out, but because heaven gave it to you, on that I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what Jesus said. The church is founded on a confession. If the church was founded on a man, what a horrible foundation that makes. Even Peter, even an apostle, you couldn't build a church on a man. And it wasn't even his confession in the first place. Heaven gave it to him. On this rock, on this confession, I will build my church, and that's why we make it clear that our foundation here at Harvest is Jesus Christ, our foundation is Jesus Christ, and why 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. we preach Christ crucified, and in the words of the Reformation, it is solus Christus, Christ alone, that we preach. All right, you got a little bit more bandwidth for the rest of this message, yeah, because I got more. That just really gets us started. The church is also, and this flows from the confession now, notice the pillar and ground of truth, the pillar and ground of truth. Paul writes this, this is 1 Timothy 3.15. Now he says, the church is a pillar, now this is the ESV, pillar and buttress of truth. Now, if I gave you 10 tries, could you even figure out what buttress is? (laughs) Anybody here? It's like, I have no idea what that is, right? Exactly. So I'm not sure why the ESV put it in there, but uh, looking at various translations, we can get a, a, a much better picture of this. In fact, the whole imagery, the metaphor here is a construction or architectural imagery that we have here. So we're talking about a pillar, and now let's look at some other words. So ESV has buttress, King James version has ground, obviously I was having a King James version moment when I was making the outline because I put ground in the outline. And then you have uh, the NIV, if you're carrying that translation, they have the word foundation there, the pillar and foundation of truth. And the one that comes closest to the mark here and uses the simplest word, um, the New American Standard Bible has the word support, and you can mark that or write that down, the word support. And so what you have here is is this is what's being described. The church is the pillar, okay, vertical post. We have some of these in the back of our room here, holding up a wall and a roof, All grateful for that, okay? So we have the pillar, the the vertical part, The, the buttress is this, okay? It's the angular support that comes against a wall. And here you have a cathedral picture here. So you can see between the stained glass on the wall, you can see where there's a pillar and then the buttress or the support, New American Standard Version, comes against that to hold it in place and to strengthen the entire building. So the reason why I'm not as fussy on what the, um, despite the fact that it's in the outline, sometimes I make the outline and then I go, I don't like that anymore, but it's already printed. And so I don't like the word ground so much and I don't like the word foundation in the NIV so much because that's really what's underlying it. The foundation is what God gives us. The foundation is what comes from heaven. The foundation is the confession. The church that's built on that foundation is the pillar and the buttress of truth. Now, listen, that's the structure that's built on the foundation. We don't want to stretch the imagery too far, but the bottom line is this. We have been entrusted with the proclamation and teaching of the word of God. That's our job in the world is to deliver the word of God, to preach the truth of God's word to a world that desperately needs to hear this. And if we don't uphold our responsibility to do that, then we have no foundation for being. This is why we exist. If people are to know what's true, it'll be because we continue to preach what we have been given. The Bible discerns what is true in this generation as it has in every generation. I think we have an argument to say that this generation of people in the history of the world is the most arrogant, pride-filled generation in the history of mankind. We have this notion in our society today in this generation that we have figured out truth better than anyone else, that we are the smartest people that have ever lived on the planet. This is a plague of Western thinking, it's a plague of modernism, and it is a plague of postmodernism, where scholars today think they're so smart because they are deconstructing truth and believe that all truth is relative. And they think they're the first ones that have come up with this. And I would reference a conversation that Jesus had with Pontius Pilate during his sentencing just prior to his crucifixion. The the Jewish leaders had brought Jesus to be crucified. They wanted Pilate to take care of their dirty work for them. And Pilate was like, I don't even find any guilt in this guy. And he sought every possible means to release him. And in the conversation back and forth with Jesus, they start talking about truth. And Pilate says to Jesus, like a 21st century postmodern, Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? Pilate was a relativist. Every generation struggled with this. And it goes all the way back to the garden when truth was first assaulted. Did God really say? He did. And we know he did. And we have his word. So every generation has wondered about truth. And here we are the church. We're the pillar and ground of truth. We're the pillar and buttress of truth. We're the ones to be proclaiming it, founded on the foundation and delivering it to the world that needs to hear it. And yet we get assaulted day in and day out with information and how do we process it and, and what really is true. And I just wanna help you out a little bit here. Maybe this will be helpful to you. So uh, several ways, there was, this is a little awkward, but several ways to not decide what is true. Okay, several ways to not decide what is true. Your university professor says it. I'm not saying that university professors don't say some things that are true, but just because a university professor says it does not make it true. Tenure does not make them smarter than you, okay? Your university professor uh, says it. Um, what else here? Um, The media says it. That's an easy one. Okay, just because the media says it does not make it true. Just because um, the prime minister says it does not make it true. And before you get all excited, just because the opposition leader says it does not make it true. Let's just confess now they're politically motivated. Just because an anonymous source says it does not make it true. just because your mother says it does not make it true. I'll confess, this was awkward in the first service because my mom was here. <laughs> mom said, dads make up stuff all the time. And if you're a mom and dad, you know it. They just make up stuff. Just because everyone says it does not make it true. Just because everyone says it a lot does not make it true. The volume of information does not relate to its truthfulness. Just because the internet says it does not make it true. And just because your pastor says it does not make it true. Everything, everything submits itself to the authority of God's word. This is truth. This is truth and we should filter everything through that. The Bible decides what's true. All right. That's two of them. We're, um, we're founded on a confession where the pillar and ground of truth is the church. And then uh, this much more practical, the church is both local and universal, local and universal. Or you could write down these words, visible. There's a visible church and there's an invisible church. Now, lots of evidence for this. We're not going to look at any of these passages, but, you know, in Acts 2, uh, you have uh, the very first church being established. A bunch of people get saved, 3,000. They're all baptized. We have a description of what that church looks like at the end of Acts chapter 2. And Paul writing all these letters to very specific churches in very specific places who had pastors and who had leaders and who had problems that he was addressing, Corinth and Thessalonica and Galatia and Ephesus and all these cities. You had John, who um, uh, through Jesus was given uh, these letters, uh, dictated these letters that were to be sent to seven very specific churches in seven cities in Asia Minor. And so you have lots of evidence throughout the scriptures that local churches in local places that had gathering spots and who were identifiable were the church, the small C local uh, church so the Bible points to the legitimacy of these local churches and gives a mandate for these churches. But beyond that, then, Paul's writing to one specific pastor. His name is Timothy. He's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he writes to him in 2 Timothy 2.19, a very interesting line. He says, the Lord knows those who are his. So in the midst of writing a letter to a very specific pastor in a specific city of a specific church, he tells him, there are actually some people in your church that aren't saved. In other words, in the local church, you can have people who are genuine believers and people who are not believers. So in this visible church, to use this language, it doesn't necessarily represent the invisible church of the true believers. The invisible church or the universal church is all believers from all time. And the Lord himself is the only one who really knows who's part of that church. And so you have both of these being taught in the scripture, universal and invisible, visible and local. And again, only God really knows who is who. And since both are taught, both are essential biblical priorities for us, both local church and universal church are biblical priorities for us. Now I want to say a little bit more about this, but I'm going to confess right at the outset, this is a little bit less preaching and a little bit more ranting hope that's okay. Can I rant for a few minutes? I'm going to anyway. I'm just going to say this. I have no time for pious, uninformed people who say this. I don't need to belong to a church because I belong to the church. I just have no time for people like that. You know why they say this? They say this to avoid accountability. They say this to avoid Giving. They say this to avoid serving. They say this to avoid having to figure out actually how to love people because when you're in the church and you're brushing up against each other like church members often do, you really do learn how to forgive and extend grace and love one another. If you want to stay out of a church so you can be part of the church, you're never going to learn those lessons. And I'm just going to say that... um, these people who avoid being the church, straight up have to ignore a ton of scripture to get to that position. So much you have to cut out of the New Testament to get there. End of rant. Back to sermon. Ready for number four? The church is guided by qualified leaders. Guided by qualified leaders. Okay, in your notes, I think I gave you a couple of references. Did I give you First uh, Corinthians twelve twenty-eight? Did I give you that one? Did I give you Ephesians 4, 11 and 12? Okay, I'm gonna give you a few more, but let me say first of all about those two verses, those two passages. They're really just talking about in the local church, and this is another argument for local church, there's leaders that have to be appointed for that church to function properly. That's what those two verses are saying. Just find some, some leaders, identify them, and appoint them to their positions in the church. Then let me give you a few other passages here if you're taking notes. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 to 13. And in that passage, you have the qualifications of uh, pastors, elders, uh, bishops, or overseers. You have qualifications for them. And then after that, you have qualifications for deacons and their wives. And then uh, you see uh, in Titus... A uh, one, five to nine, more qualifications of the overseer or the elder or the pastor. And then in a beautiful passage of 1 Peter, five, one to five, you have this uh, driving point, again, qualifications for those who would serve in these leadership roles, but with the preeminent characteristic being that of humility. And, um, and so you have all these qualifications. You have this instruction to appoint uh, leaders and elders in the church and um, The church needs to be guided by qualified leaders. Now, one thing about the Reformation, and again, we've framed this whole series up around the Reformation, and we've preached the series in front of the church door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, where Luther posted his 95 theses. But when we talk about the Reformation, one of the things the Reformation didn't really deal with was this matter of ecclesiology. It didn't really address matters related to the church, except in so far as they ditched the Pope. They got rid of the Pope, but then after that, it became a bit of a free-for-all in Protestantism for all different kinds of governance structures. And so that's why Protestant churches today reflect all these different governance models. And let me give you an example of some of these. There's the uh, single leader dictatorships. So even though they got rid of the Pope, this, in Bible college we called these, because we saw this in Baptist world every once in a while, uh, we called these pastor popes. Okay, where the pastor was literally in charge of everything. Everything channeled through him. He made every decision. Nobody would make any decisions without him knowing. I want to let you know this church is not that church. I'm not the pastor pope. I'm not in charge of anything. I'm not even actually in charge of much. There, there, we have a great staff team, we have great elders who are in charge of so much, we push responsibility out. I, I say sometimes um, that lead pastor's actually a bit of an honorary title here at Harvest. I actually say that, because Pastor Dan actually runs the place. And, and, and so that's, we're not in that model for sure. Um, we're not a um, single leader dictatorship. Neither are we a bureaucratic hierarchy. Uh, this would be like most formal denominations with, um, with bishops and regional leaders and so on. And uh, we don't have that. Um, uh, Some churches are uh, congregational democracies. So they have voting among the congregation. They have uh, these, um, I'm gonna betray my uh, prejudices here, but cumbersome committee structures. I'm pretty out on committees. And um, other churches are autonomous local churches within a broader but loose fellowship of churches. We've been a part of that. Um, And then uh, would have simple elder governance and for our part, that's kind of where we land, just a simple elder governance, having taken the simplest reading of the Bible to see that elders should be appointed over us following the model of the apostle Paul who told Titus, go into every city, appoint elders to oversee uh, the church. And so that's pretty much it for us on this matter of, of why we are an elder governed church. And some people then would ask the question then, have you managed to avoid any kind of upsets or challenges in your church because you're elder governed. And before I answer the question, let me ask how many people have been here more than nine years? How about you answer the question? Have we avoided all major upsets as a result of being elder governed? Uh, No, we have not. And we have some stuff in our history that was very painful, even though we are an elder governed church. And so I was looking for some insight about this. And I turned to one of my favorite historical characters, Winston Churchill, to help us understand governance in the church and elder governance. And here's what Winston Churchill said about democracy. And I think this is super helpful. But listen to what uh, Churchill said. Many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time." So, so we get that. We hear what Churchill's saying. We think democracy is the best, but it's actually the worst except for all the other kinds. And so I was thinking about Churchill and could that inform what, what we're talking about here with regard to elder governance in the church. And so let's look at this. Many forms of church government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that elder governance is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that elder governance is the worst form of church government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Todd Dugard. (laughs) Ripping off Churchill. And um, so we're grateful for what we have here uh, in the midst of all the imperfections of it. And I want to say we're super grateful for the elders that we have serving in this church, and I hope you're grateful for them. They've all been here this weekend and serving uh, Christ with distinction and serving you. And uh, uh, they do so uh, in a God-dependent way and attentive to the scriptures and seeking to lead in a very uh, godly way. So I'm grateful for them. All right, ready for number five, the church is also observant of the ordinances, and in this service, of course, we uh, celebrate it and observe the Lord's table. There are two ordinances or orders uh, that are uh, given to the church by Christ. Sometimes these are called in more liturgical churches sacraments. Uh, These are prescribed in the New Testament for the church to observe. I could have picked a lot of passages here, but Acts 2.42, we see baptism being practiced again on the day of Pentecost. You had 3,000 people who were saved, and they were baptized as a testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ, uh, publicly baptized in that way. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 26 is where Paul gives his instructions on the Lord's table. Uh, Matthew 26, 26 to 29 is where the uh, Lord's table was actually inaugurated uh, by Christ. And so a word about baptism, first of all, again, a plain reading of the Bible. Uh, we understand that baptism happens by immersion. The word baptism actually means immersion, to dip or to put underwater. And so we practice that uh, mode. We, we know from Romans chapter 6 that baptism in this manner, by going beneath the water, actually pictures as a person uh, is being baptized, it pictures the death a burial and resurrection uh, to new life of a person. And so we're picturing our salvation in the very act of baptism, that's important. And we understand that as a result of it being baptism, of being immersion, it needs to happen post-conversion. In other words, after a person actually makes their own personal confession of faith. Now I was raised in an Anglican home, Anglican sprinkle babies, and um, I'm super appreciative to my parents for what they did for me and seeking to expose me to that. We weren't uh, believers by a long shot, but we were religious in some fashion. So uh, uh, after I was born, my parents uh, took me off to St. Ignatius Parish, Montreal North, and the priest there sprinkled some water on my head. Uh, But at nine months of age, I was unable to articulate a profession of faith in Christ. I mean, I think I'm reasonably smart, but at nine months, that would be a lot to ask. (laughs) And, And so I didn't make a profession of faith in Christ. Then at age 21, when I realized the teaching of God's word, I was in a different church and I requested being baptized by immersion on the profession of my faith in Christ, which is the model that we see in the New Testament over and over again. So that's baptism. We practice that. And then uh, the Lord's table is to be practiced regularly. No other prescription beyond that word uh, to remember with gratitude the Lord's death until he comes. The bread, his body, the cup, his blood shed for us and the sacrifice pictured in these elements. So we're observant of the two ordinances. And then this last one for this section, the church is on... Mission for God's glory. A couple of key passages here that speak to the great commission that Jesus gave to us, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We're to go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's our mandate. Acts one it's given again, but now with a more of a geographical sense to it. And Jesus said, you shall be my witness. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. So he's talking to them and they're all in Jerusalem. It's going to start right here in our city. It's going to move out from there to the province. It's going to move to the next promise. Uh, So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the farthest reaches of the world. And 2,000 years later, we're still seeking to accomplish that and sending people around the world and seeking to plant churches around the world so that people could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The commission that Jesus gave us uh, tells us to preach Christ, to baptize, to integrate them into the life of churches that will be planted as a result of our evangelism. And all of this, notice, for the ultimate purpose of pleasing God. We're on mission for God's glory. And in the language of the Reformation, it is solely Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. And we speak here, the language we use is that we, we're seeking to be a vertical church. In other words, we want everything that happens, to be, to, that happens here to be about God, vertical. We're looking to Him. We want things to happen here that are unexplainable because the Holy Spirit came and filled us and empowered us and did things that were remarkable. And we want to be on mission for him. Uh, It's no secret. And we talked about this in the State of the Church message a few weeks ago. And several years ago, we first articulated uh, the thought that we wanted to reach the rest of Simcoe County. And and because our county is so big, we wanted to put campuses or church plants in all these different communities around Simcoe County. And so we're now doubling down on that because uh, God has not opened up a door for us to do that in the last several years. And we thought maybe that had to do with getting here first and having a base from which we could do that. So this past Thursday, we brought in a man by the name of Rich Birch. He's local to us, lives up uh, in Aurelia, and uh, he's been on church staff three different churches in uh, Canada, U.S., and he uh, was the lead guy in helping plant, uh, uh, helping those churches start 14 campuses. And so these churches all became multi-site, and uh, they were um, uh, reaching out into their area with multiple uh, campuses. We thought Rich is as big of an expert as you can find on this. Let's bring him in to talk to us about it as we're thinking about it and strategizing uh, for it. And so so Rich uh, put a question in front of us. Uh, he, he, uh, he said this, what do people, what do you tell your friends when you're trying to get them to come to church? You're wanting to invite them, and what what little... What bait are you putting out there? What are you saying to them to try and attract them, to get them to say a yes to coming here? So I started thinking about this. We talked about one or two things with Rich, and then I started thinking about a top 10 list of all the different things that we might say, okay, that, that, that we might say to people when we're trying to attract them to church. So top 10 things uh, you tell your friends when inviting them to harvest. Number uh, 10, we're making a difference. We're making a difference. You know, like a lot of people are, you know, I want to see that you're working with the food bank and you're helping the homeless and you're you're working with vulnerable people in your city. A lot of people, that's really important to them, that a church isn't just insular and about themselves. And so that's important. You can tell your friends that. Number nine, a good-looking staff. (laughs) No, I think that's important because no one wants to look at ugly. You know, I'm... I'm... Could happen. Number eight... um, this has been a popular one lately. See what we've done with the place? You know, like we have this building that was a, a, a spot that thousands and tens of thousands of people from Barry and Simcoe County have come to over the last several decades. And so to say to people, oh, you should come and see the renovations. And we use that as a hook to get people to kind of come in the door. I've done that a lot in the last several months. Number seven, the preacher's funny. Well, he's funnier than Pastor Roger. That's for sure. Shots fired, Always. Number six, the location is convenient. Number five, the people are friendly. I believe that. Number four, the seats are comfy. You know, like, you, I mean, you invite people to church, right? And they're in their mind, if they're not like a church person, they're thinning, thinking hard wooden pews. That's what they're thinking. And you're like, no, 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 we don't have those. You need to come to church. They're really nice chairs. And, and we start talking about how many inches of thickness there is and how high the bag is and, and all of that. And so seats are comfy. Number three, Coldplay leads worship. <laughs> Coldplay-ish leads worship. Uh, number two, Harvest Kids rocks, and it really does. And number one, two words, a great coffee, right? We, we, our cafe, you should taste the coffee. It's, it's not like church coffee. And, and so we attract people with these things. How many people would just confess right now, you've used one or more of these things in trying to invite somebody to come uh, to harvest, for sure. And, um, and here's the thing, I'm not, I'm not dissing any of those. I'm, I'm not putting any of those uh, down. All of them are important in one way or another, even, even the good-looking staff, one. all of those are important in one way or another. But I, here's what I wonder. I wonder how much we emphasize these things to the exclusion of what's truly important. I mean, in our minds, what's truly important. I get that the person you're inviting may not have figured out the glory of God thing, but we should. I mean, why should people really come here? The mission is not great coffee, but life transformation by the power of Jesus Christ. That's why we're bringing people here. Now, if if coffee helps us do that, fine. If comfy seats get people in the door, if the location central in the city in the county helps us, then I'm grateful for all of that. Again, I'm not putting any of that down, but let's not confuse our priorities. Number one is the mission to glorify God by doing what he told us to do. All right, that's, hopefully you have a better grasp from what the church is from the scriptures. That's a survey of what uh, the church is all about. Now, theology meets practice. Theology meets application. If we just have doctrine and we don't do anything with it, it's useless. And so now we want to talk about uh, how I'm living because of this. And what we're going to do here is just frame it up in terms of some metaphors that we have in the New Testament to describe the church. This isn't even all of them. It's just five of them that I picked out. And so let's look at this uh, quickly. Uh, The church is, first of all, uh, described as a family. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.18 I will be a father to you and you shall be uh, sons and daughters to me. Obviously, family imagery. In 1 Timothy 3.15, we're described as the church, we're described as the household of God or the family of God. And so if that's true, if we're a family, then here's the application. I, I, I should be making myself at home here. It's just like a family, and I need to come in understanding it is just like a family. So there's some like normal people in the family and there's always some weirdos. Every family's got weirdos. So that's not going to be surprising that the church has some of those. That, that there's a healthy amount because every, every family has this. There's a healthy amount of dysfunction. There's a healthy amount of conflict. I get all of that because every family has that and this family has that. So I'm going to make myself at home. I'm going to be part of the family. I'm not going to go out of my way to be the weirdo, but you know. I'm going to be part of the family. I'm going to contribute to its well-being. I'm going to be invested. I'm going to be in relationship. I'm going to forgive because there's times when I'm going to have to forgive. And I'm going to ask for forgiveness because there's going to be some times when I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness. I'm going to extend lots of grace to people. I'm going to show love as often as I can. I'm going to show mercy to people. I'm not just going to be that person that drops in once in a while to visit the family, not just the neighbor who stops by, not just the friend from out of town who, who drops in for a little bit? Let me be part of the family, my family, God's family. Well, the church is also a temple. First Peter two four to eight, you yourselves like living stones. And he's talking to the members of this is Peter talking to a church. He's talking to the particular members of the church, and he says, "You're like stones. You're living stones. We're building a, a, a building here, a, a structure." You yourselves like living stones are being built up. Notice as a spiritual house, a temple to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And so if this is a temple, well, now I'm coming with my worship. I'm coming with my offering. I'm coming with my serving. I'm coming with my fulfilling the mission. I'm holding nothing back from him the language here is of sacrifice and you might jot down even romans 12:1 and 2 which speaks of us being living sacrifices and here's the whole point we're building this temple there's an altar sacrifices are being made on this altar you can't make partial sacrifices and you're not bringing a sacrifice in the sense that it's something else you're the sacrifice I'm the sacrifice. I'm the one going on the altar. It's, it's my throat that's being slit. It's my blood that's being drained out. It's my body in its entirety that's being burned for Christ. I'm a living sacrifice for Christ. We're the temple of God and that's what we bring to him. It's a pretty much an all-in thing if you're for the church. The church is a family, it's a temple, it's a body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 27. One phrase in there says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, listen, this is the body of Christ. We often talk about the church in this way. We're the body of Christ. Christ himself is the head of the church, the head of the body. And every one of us, 1 Corinthians 12 speaks to this, is a part of the body. Every one of us has a function in the body to help the body function in a healthy way. Everyone's a part, so I need to play my part. I need to find my spiritual gift and talent, and I need to use that for his glory. I need to find what my passion and ministry is, and I need to apply my life to that. I need to get at it. There's no excuse, and there are plenty of warnings for those who claim to be Christ followers and do nothing. It's not a great place to be. Family, temple, body, vine. The church is a living organism. It's a plant. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, connected to the vine, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, this is a commitment to growth. It's a commitment to be tapped into the source of life, which is Jesus Christ. It's a commitment to say, am I growing? Am I maturing in Christ? Am I becoming more and more like him? Am I into his word? Am I praying to him and communing with him? And am I helping others achieve maturity and growth in Christ? I I, I love this steps program that we have and the fact that there are mentors coming alongside those that are taking steps to, to walk, literally walk with them as they're taking their steps to overcome some things in their lives. I'm grateful for those advocates who work in biblical soul care ministry, who attend sessions with the soul care counselor and, and, and with the counselee and then will meet with that counselee to walk through it. I'm grateful for people who serve in Awana and Harvest Kids and in Harvest Youth who are mentoring and walking al- alongside our children, our young people so that they can grow and mature in Christ so that we can show them how to be connected to the vine because that's what we do as the church. And then finally, this one, and appropriately last, the church is a bride, the bride of Christ. 2 Corinthians eleven two, for I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, that is Christ, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ and again we're heading towards this Revelation 21 wedding day hasn't happened yet we're waiting to get to that place where we as the pure bride are being presented to the groom and this union will take place that will carry us through all eternity and so I need to be committed to my purity The church and its members must pursue holiness and righteousness as the bride of Christ. And are you committed to all of these things? The church is a family, it's a temple, it's a body, it's a vine. It's a bride. And no matter how anyone else sees it, this is what we talked about off the top, no matter how anyone else sees it, This is how God sees his church. Listen now, let's be what he sees. Let's be what he sees. So that wraps up our message on the church. And I thought we should wrap up this series by reaffirming the seven here I stand stand statements that we made. And so I'm actually gonna get you to stand up right now. And on the screen, we're gonna have these uh, statements. And listen, if, if you're... Part of this church family, then I expect you to say these and you're going to want to say these with passion and conviction. This is our confession. But if you're a guest here today and you're not sure about all of this or you're still investigating Christ, then just listen and take it in and observe what the church is saying about these things. So you're going to read this right out. You don't need me to really lead it. Let me just get you started. Here I stand. The Bible.